This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. You know, having done this program for so many years, I think it's up to 24 or something like that, uh, you'd think that I probably would have heard everything, but so far I haven't heard an appropriate answer for the question, why are there so many lawyer jokes at the expense of the attorneys? I mean, it isn't the lawyers telling jokes about their clients. It's uh, people doing shark tank jokes about the fact that, well, certainly it's in the tank. It's, uh, they're all attorneys. Well, I mean, why? You go to law school and you're then responsible for other people's conditions in society. We're going to probably find out at least part of the answer to that question as we have a judge, a respected attorney, uh, a personal injury attorney. These are the folks that advertise on television so much. Judge J. Tyrrell Tabor, that's T-A-B-E-R, much like the weapon. Is that right, sir? The drum, the drum. Yeah, saber. It's spelled the same as saber, only with the T. Okay, so the tabor is a like a snare drum. Yes, it is a Welsh snare drum. Ah, it's just French French term and uh, French word. And you, sir, have been practicing law now for, uh, from what I understand, more than forty-five years. Correct. Uh, ever regret the choice? No. Some days I think that I think I should have done something else, but I get over it fairly quickly. Okay, well, I started with the joke thing. Why? I, I, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand. Know. I mean, people tell jokes about doctors. They tell jokes about politicians. And I've never heard a surgeon joke. Yeah, uh, I've heard a few. My dad was a surgeon. He was an orthopedic surgeon here in town. Uh, I think lawyer jokes, I think they're just an easy target because of the way they're portrayed in the media and the way people think about them, uh, which is unfortunate. Because I've spent my whole life really helping people who've been the victims of other people's negligence and misconduct uh, try to get compensation for what happened to them. So I think it's a noble profession, uh, a sturdy profession. I like it a lot. And uh, um, if I had it to do over again, I'd do the exact same thing. But it just seems, it seems peculiar to me. I just, right before the show, thought... <laughs> about that particular, uh, that particular phenomenon that you're doing these things, you and your associates, the firm of Gallagher and Kennedy, highly respected. This is a, a planet-wide broadcast. So the people in Singapore don't know really much about Gallagher and Kennedy, but they have attorneys, and those are the ones that you go to when you need help with some kind of decision based on justice. And yet the jokes are at the expense of the attorney. Right. My uh, ethics professor in law school, <clears throat> Murray Gallenstein, he said, listen, don't tell lawyer jokes. Lawyer jokes are not funny, and uh, it reflects badly on your profession. So I try to not do that. But we're not going to do it here. That's all right. But I thought that it was an interesting well, uh, avenue to pursue, particularly talking to a 45-year 
career attorney, a judge specializing in his uh, work with a highly respected law firm in Phoenix, Arizona, practicing law on the side of people who need help with personal injury decisions, wrongful death, general civil litigation, uh, burn injuries. Uh, it's, uh, it's remarkable when you go through this and you see that you specialize in working with people who have injuries specifically associated with just about every vehicle that has ever been created. Helicopters, planes, cars, bicycles, motorcycles, all of them. Why does that attract television so much? I'm talking about television commercials. Oh, I think it's uh, it's a it's a broad market. There's a it's a it's a high yield market. There's a lot of people who have who get in car crashes, who get in injuries caused by uh, vehicles and, and uh, uh, mechanical devices, and they need help. And uh, there's some, most people I think think about it in terms of the rear end car collision, but we, we deal more with very, very significant collisions where there's been life-threatening and life-changing events, and also life-taking events. And uh, try to get justice for them. It's not a an advertisement where we're trying to just get people to call us and trying to get the more people who call us, the more money we're going to make. Is some that those, not true, though, of some firms? There are certain models for law firms where that is true. And when you're talking about those kinds of of uh, judgments and those kinds of cases. It seems to me that you're talking about among the most common cases that exist in society. Uh, somebody hits my car. Correct. Did they hit it from the back, the side, the front? Uh, what kind of injury was involved? And was I personally responsible? Was there alcohol involved? Effective. All of those things. All of those things. And you have to narrow it down to who's guilty and who's innocent. Do you have to ever tell a client that he doesn't have a case because he was the one at fault? All the time. Really? Mm -hmm. Yes. I've had people call me. They never became clients. They explained what happened. And I said, well, unfortunately, it looks like it's your fault. And uh, call your insurance company and get them ready to... Uh, do whatever they're supposed to do, assuming they have insurance, which unfortunately a lot of people don't. Why would it be the fault of a driver who had medical difficulties and blacked out? Well, there are some cases on that, and you can argue that you had a sudden emergency, sudden medical emergency. It's very rare. It does happen from time to time. We've had people that are driving a car and had a heart attack passed out behind the wheel and uh, uh, it depends on what did they know how long did they know it did their family know that they had problems uh, should they have been behind the wheel to begin with there's a variety of different issues that spin off of that and now after all those years in law school and after all of these years of examining closely the details 
of these kinds of cases, now you have to face driverless cars. Correct. You know, I was driving down here, and uh, I saw the first two Waymo vehicles. I thought they were in a drag race. They were side-by-side side going down Camelback Road. And for those people who are listening in Stockholm right now, Waymo is an organization uh, that, as a result of the bulb on top, you recognize them instantly because they don't necessarily have to have a driver. It's all done with computers. There's nobody in either car. And, and these didn't even have passengers in them, and they were just moving on down the road. It was very odd to see. I thought, wow, I don't think I've ever seen that before. When, when you see now as many, um, uh, as many areas of presentation with the number of commercials, I mean, disproportionate as far as a professional career field is concerned, advertising on television. You don't see that many architects. Uh, you, uh, you don't see that many neurosurgeons, but you see attorneys in every possible specialty area. And, and I ask you, as we approach the real subject of this show, and The God Show today is all about justice and morality, uh, it seems as if the emphasis is on the amount of the judgment. And I, I can get this much more for you than the other guy, or this much more for you because I'm the guy who tells you that I can get this much more for you. Uh, it, it just seems to me that there's less about justice and morality than there is about profit. I think that the practice of law, uh, the idea behind Bates and Osteen and the ability for lawyers to advertise, the idea was First Amendment rights and, and informing the public of what their rights are so that we were supposedly doing a good deed. Um, I never liked lawyer advertising until I went to a seminar where somebody pulled out a, an advertisement for Herndon and Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois, in 1850. And Abraham Lincoln advertised on the front page of the paper with his partner. And that was the way they attracted clients. And then wow. I thought to myself, I guess if Abraham Lincoln could do it, I guess I'll have to learn how to live with it. And, and the, folks, the folks who come to you, the kind of help that they need isn't always... Uh, a matter of uh, dollar signs. It's also medical help. Oh, definitely. The issue becomes what happened to the person. Who are the right doctors to get them to? What kind of help do they need? What kind of assistance do they need? Are they going to miss time from work? Uh, uh, did their accident happen in the course and scope of their employment? Is workers' compensation their only remedy? And uh, you have a variety of different issues. And lawyers basically, when we look at a case, we look at liability in terms of who's responsible, who's at fault, who was negligent, what was their negligence, and what did it cause. Then we look at what are the injuries, and the injuries can be physical, go to an orthopedic surgeon and get your broken bone fixed, or they can be uh, medical where they need to do surgery and they need to do repeat surgeries. Back injuries oftentimes result in multiple surgeries on people. 
caused by uh, uh, collisions. And then the other part of it is economic in terms of if you couldn't do your job and uh, uh, you were missing time from work and missing income, uh, and what's your future capacity to earn money and how is it affected by the sex? Well, why is there even another side to that? I mean, you're, you're pulling somebody out of a car shattered and yet there's then the other side. Correct. Yeah, the other side is, you know, uh, I, the light was yellow. Uh, uh, I wasn't speeding. Uh, I was driving within the speed limit. I didn't do anything wrong. His car just came out in front of me and I hit it. So uh, almost anybody involved in this kind of litigation has an insurance company that's involved with them. And the defendant and the insurance companies are the opposite, I guess, of what you talked about before. They're interested in profits, but they're not really interested in compensating people for their losses to the full extent of their losses. As they used to say, every dime, we have a million uh, claims a year. And if we can just chisel one dollar off of each claim, mm. that's a million dollars that falls to our bottom line. So we get to the point then of the program today, and that is morality. Yeah. And what really is justice? Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to hear your personal definition uh, and just the book according to Ty. Sure. Morality versus justice. Is it the same? I don't think they're the same. I think they're very interrelated. And morality is more a personal, individual uh, uh, guide, guideline. And, and justice is more of a community or a social guideline. What are we willing to accept as a society so we can live together versus what I personally think is the right or wrong thing to do? The first one being justice, the second one being morality. But you, as a judge, uh, have to sit then on the bench and make those determinations in one way. But as an attorney representing a client, it's a different kind of responsibility, isn't sure. it? I spent, yes, it is. My, I spent the first part of my life as a lawyer working for insurance companies and defending people uh, uh, for a variety of the big five insurance companies. Uh, and I've spent, after seven years, I switched over to being a plaintiff's lawyer and doing the opposite side of it, and that's where I've been the entire time. And uh, I think as a lawyer, you're trained to see both sides of the issue, and you're trained to advocate whichever side you've been assigned. And... Uh, uh, use your best efforts in that regard. In this position that you're in now, do you feel differently about the moral standards of insurance companies? Oh, I don't know that. I don't know that I would. Yeah, I, I, I think the moral standards of insurance companies uh, really isn't the relevant inquiry. The relevant inquiry is... They're a business, and they make money, and their business is the less money they pay out, the more money they have for their shareholders, and that's how they live their life. So they are attracted to and hire lawyers that have 
multitude of skills in terms of trying to find the right doctors to say there's nothing wrong with the plaintiff, uh, the right accident reconstructionist to say the accident couldn't have injured the plaintiff. They can say all sorts of things, and it's a it's a billion dollar uh, uh, industry, and uh, they're very acutely situated camps. One is seeking compensation, one is not. And wouldn't it have been a wonderful idealistic position for everyone to be in at the very beginning of time for us to start and continue to pursue these decisions based on the golden rule? It's a hard rule to argue with. I mean, you know, I mean, you know who wants to be treated any differently than they want to be treated? And I think that plays a role in the making of laws, in the administration of justice, and in personal relationships between people. Uh, uh, and that's morality. And we face moral issues every day. And, and justice issues, if you're a lawyer or if you're in the, the judicial system, you'll face it. Even police officers and different people. You know, I'm a judge at the municipal court in the town of Paradise Valley. And it's an interesting, it's a limited jurisdiction court, similar to the justice of the peace course, courts that we have in Arizona. And in, to be a justice of the peace, of course, you don't have to be a lawyer, but a municipal judge needs to be a lawyer. To me, I've tried cases in the Superior Court of Arizona, the Superior Court of California, uh, uh, been to the, all the courts of appeals here, including our Arizona Supreme Court, and argued cases. Most of the time when a citizen is going to be involved in the judicial or the justice process in America, it'll be in a limited jurisdiction court where the issues are traffic, their zoning, their uh, home ownership issues, neighbor issues. That's where they'll really get exposure to our justice system. So as a, as a judge in a limited jurisdiction court, I really con I'm concerned about how the people who come in front of me leave and what their impression of is of how they were treated. Mm. Did they get their day in court? Did, were they allowed to be heard? Even if you rule against them, did you at least listen to them? Did you at least show that you're respectful of their time? And I think that's a big point. And, and I think the higher you go up the uh, jurisprudence uh, chain, perhaps you lose some of that. We're speaking on this God show today about morality and justice. Is it the same? Are there words that should be defined differently? And are they defined differently from one law firm? to another, one constituency to another. And we're talking about all of those things with Judge J. Tyrrell Tabor, a gentleman who practices law uh, at Gallagher and Kennedy in Phoenix, Arizona. But as law is practiced around the world, and I mentioned to you, Ty, that uh, this is an international broadcast, uh, isn't there really a dramatic difference in the definition of morality and justice from one country to another? Well, I think that a lot of countries have a codified system of justice. What does they that have mean? statutes or codes, like the Napoleonic Code in France, where everything's written down. 
and and out of England you get the common law, and we sort of developed our law system from the uh, uh, English system, where they try to take situations and decide what's the right thing to do in this situation on a case-by-case basis, and then they make and morph laws that uh, fit certain situations, and then the issue becomes how close is the present situation before the judge to that. And isn't it true, though, that in some cultures and some societies and constituencies that, uh, unlike in America, uh, you are determined to be guilty until proven otherwise? Correct. That's true. That's scary. Uh, It would be, you know what, that's why... I like being an American and living in America and living in Arizona where we have a constitution that protects us from interference from the federal government and the state government and and defines for us what our rights are so we know what they are and we can either comply with them and keep ourselves out of trouble or know the consequences if we don't. Who's got the best legal system in the world? The United States of America. Why? It was founded by people... It, it, it was created by people who had been the victims of tyranny from the King of England, and they had their own gripes at the time, and they were smart guys, and they sat around, and uh, uh, they came up with a system that was totally new, uh, from scratch, and here we are 200 years later, and we're still following the same system uh, doing the same things. It, it's, it, I think Americans have lost sight of how much our Constitution protects citizens from other citizens and from the government itself. That was their big fear. They didn't want the President of the United States to be like the King of England who could be a tyrant and he could come onto your property and take your daughter and say this is mine they didn't want any of that they wanted to be clear and specific on what you could and couldn't do and what would happen to you if you didn't and that's i think what justice is about or what are the consequences of not complying with the laws and the the ethos of the uh, country and uh doing something that you know is wrong and it's clearly identified as something wrong, what are the consequences of that? That's where justice comes into play. So as an attorney and as a judge, then you can perhaps in its simplicity still feel that we're in pretty good shape if we fall back on the Constitution. I think that's... that's the center of our entire society. It all arises out of the Constitution. And unfortunately, we're in a world where uh, there's different opinions about how you interpret the Constitution. There's different ways that you look at it. And uh, that's why we have Supreme Courts that do things that change long-standing case, uh, uh, stare decisis case law authority because they look at things differently, um, and we could debate that forever, which has gone on since uh, 
1700s when we founded our country. But one of the curiosities to me always has been that in a country where most of the citizens proudly kind of stand up and say, yeah, yeah, no, this is a country based on not only the Constitution, but on a fundamental definition that every human being has of justice and morality. How, with that premise, could there ever have been slavery? So, slavery was an economic decision made at a point in time when the world was much different. And um, if you think about it today, it's just incomprehensible. And it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's like, why are we doing this? But there's still, there's sexual uh, slavery and trafficking, sex trafficking, and there's all this terrible stuff that still goes on. Um, you know, I guess it's like smoking. Can you ever really give me a good reason why you should smoke? I mean, there's, there, there, there's no good reason. Uh, uh, there's no defense to the concept of slavery. It's an absurd idea. And, and um, how it ever became a part of our country, I don't know. But it did, and we dealt with it, and we did the right thing over time in terms of the laws we enacted and the things we did to address the inequities that was created by the existence of the institution of slavery. And things are better. They're not great, but they're a lot better. I read a, a couple of definitions. I wonder if you agree that morality is defined by personal beliefs, justice by societal standards. Completely agree. Yes. I can have my own moral code about what I think is right and wrong, and I can impose it on me and any one of my children who's willing to listen to it uh, uh, for as long as they want. Uh, but I can't m take them to court because they didn't do what, they didn't live up to my moral expectations of what they were supposed to do. But I think justice is, we all have a concept that if we act as reasonably careful people in the way we live our lives, we're not gonna cause injury to someone else. We're gonna be within the uh, realm of safety and, and life will go on. And every once in a while, people uh, negligently cause harm to someone else. That's what our civil justice system is about. And every once in a while, people intentionally cause injury to other people. And that's what our criminal justice system is all about. And in the criminal side, which I haven't done a lot of, there's, they split it up in terms of uh, 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 how intentional was your conduct first-degree murder, second-degree murder, those types of things. Perhaps it's as a result of a certain amount of Irish naivete uh, on my part, but I always grew up thinking, well, if there's any question at all about whether this is just, whether it can be allowed to continue or not within the structure of our laws, eventually it's going to go to the Supreme Court and they'll decide, and then everything will be perfect. And everything will be non-political. I always, I always felt that there was 
of, of those branches of the government, the least political there ever could be would be the Supreme Court. I don't believe that anymore. I don't think most Americans believe that anymore. Was I naive about believing it before? I don't think you were naive. I think that's the way we're brought up and trained, that the country we live in, the Supreme Court is supposed to give you an objective evaluation of what the law is and a reasoned uh, uh, application to the given circumstances. But you don't have to go any farther than Roe versus Wade in our lifetime to see that pivotal major issues can change based on the makeup of the court. You can flip completely to the other side. And uh, it's kind of hard to think about. It's kind of hard to think about. Well, and the justices, after all, are chosen by political figures. Absolutely. You know, it wasn't always that way. You say it has always been? No, it was not always that way. Okay, thank you. They didn't really... The way people used to get on the Supreme Court in the 17 and 1800s and in the early 1900s was the the, uh, president would decide who he wanted to be on there and he'd send it over to the uh, Congress and they would vote by acclamation, meaning I want to put Pat McMahon on the court and they'd go to the court and they go to the Senate and the House of Representatives and say uh, what do you think and they say they just do a voice vote how many want Pat McMahon and they'd all get up and say aye and it was done by acclamation and it was almost always unanimous it was never really something to fight about because the people that were being selected were being selected because they had a history of being in the judicial system and they could enhance the value of that part of our three-part system of uh, running a country. Uh, uh, And uh, that was the way it looked until I think probably President Roosevelt when he tried to pack the court in the 40s, in 30s and 40s, because he couldn't get some of his legislation through the people, the justices that were on there. Uh, um, He wanted to do a lot of the New Deal work, and they said, nah, Uh, The New Deal's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional. And interestingly, they just had a change in judges. He tried to add more judges to the court like that was done here and done in several other states where they just added two judges or four judges or whatever to to increase the quota so they could get more people uh, that would be of a like mind. And... uh, um, the, the Congress rejected all of that, and the citizens rejected all of that from Roosevelt. Then it, if you watch the history of appointments to the Supreme Court, uh, there were some issues in the 60s, but really when Nixon became president, uh, he had made a statement that he was going to put uh, a southern judge on the court and most of the southern judges at the time were um, from the southern states, let's just say they had a feeling about civil rights that was different from most of the country. And so Nixon made a big deal out of it, trying to put two different justices on there, and neither one of them could get approval. Neither one of them could get passed. Um, 
because they just didn't meet the test. And that precipitated the new American approach to everything, which is if you don't get your way, you just put it on the sideboard and then you go forward trying to figure out how you're going to get your way tomorrow or next month or next year. Everybody said no today, but maybe they won't in the future. Are you disappointed that we've come to that point? Very much so. What can we do about it? Arizona is an interesting state because we were the last of the 48 states and we have a very liberal constitution. People don't realize that our state constitution has a articulated right of privacy. And the right of privacy in our state constitution is the implied right of privacy that was used in the Roe versus Wade and the Griswold versus Connecticut. Uh, those cases to create certain constitutional rights by the Supreme Court. We actually say it in our constitution. And we used to elect all of our judges. All of our judges in the state of Arizona had to run for office. Then we started running into problems in the 60s and 70s about judges being voted off the bench by the population in the larger counties simply because they made a correct but controversial ruling. So then they went to the federal system, the Missouri system, and they started to have a committee to select names and nominate them to the governor, and then the governor would pick one of the people from the uh, list and appoint them, and the idea was that they would be uh, the most capable judge. You know what? You're one of the most capable media people in the world, and if there were media jobs open to you, you could have them all over the United States because you have a lot of knowledge about it that nobody else has. And the courts should be the same way. They should be open to people who have knowledge and bring help and information to the rest of us to do that job on behalf of all of us to run our courts so that we do get justice. Everybody gets uh, 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 treated the same. And, and the idea that all men are created equal, let's call it all persons are created equal, is a living, breathing reality as opposed to uh, some words that were scratched down 200 and some odd years ago. Because they weren't meant to be words that would be scratched down and forgotten. That's the creed of the American nation, and, and that's what we should be uh, uh, adhering to, all of us, all of us, and pushing for, let us get the best judges that we can get, the people that are best qualified to do this. And we've gotten away from that, and I don't know why, but it's, it's, it's creating a lot of stress and anxiety across the nation that's not necessary, shouldn't be happening. Arriving at a just decision or a decision on the side of morality isn't easy after all. Don't you think, though, that every judge has to bring the concerns of the community as reflected in the law and that's statutory law and also case law. But he also has to bring, or he or she has to bring their sense of um, 
their own sense of the morality to the issue, but not so much in terms of deciding what's the right thing to do, but deciding in this particular case, how do I come to a resolution that is legally just and take into consideration the morality of what happened in this case? And you can do that, and it's done all the time. A lot of people say, well, my only... Uh, um, obligation as a judge is to enforce the laws of the state of Arizona as they're written. <laughs> Every law that's ever been written has been the subject of some dispute by various people. Uh, so don't you think that when you're deciding how you want to apply the law, you need to take any consideration, personal observations about this particular case, what happened in this case, and, and the morality of doing what's on the high side of the sentence scale or on the low side of the sentence scale. It just makes sense. And judges are supposed to be able to juggle both those uh, competing concepts and come up with the idea that uh, uh, this is a just result. And every time you see a judge, every time you see a resolution of a case by a judge or by a jury, people immediately start to criticize. You, you don't have to think any farther back than O.J. Simpson's case. The whole country was split right down the middle in terms of what happened. And, and was it justice? Wasn't it justice? Who knows? I mean, uh, 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 the jury, Thomas Jefferson said, the single most important right in our Constitution is your right to a trial of jury by your peers. And, and I believe that's true. And I'm a trial lawyer. I've been a trial lawyer my whole life. And my feeling is, whatever the jury says, that's probably the best evidence of what was the right thing to do. They heard all the facts. They listened to all the witnesses. They saw them all. They heard all the lawyers make all the arguments. They listen to the judge instruct them, and they listen to the judge uh, comment on different things that went on during the course of the trial, and they came to their decision. And I respect that, and I respect their decision. Uh, um, that was their job. That's why they were chosen to do that case. And I don't think any juror goes on to a jury with the intention of doing injustice. They go on there. Uh, uh, with the intention of listening and doing what they're instructed to do and doing it right. And it's not a perfect system, but I can't think of a better one. And all of those decisions that have been made in this country on behalf of the total population, and look how long it took us to simply get a female Supreme Court justice. Oh, and she came from here. She was an amazing woman. Uh, um, I appeared in front of her in the Superior Court. Remind everybody who we're talking about. We're talking about Sandra Day O'Connor from Duncan, Arizona. Educated in El Paso, Texas, not in Duncan, but uh, went on to Stanford University. Brilliant woman, extraordinarily intelligent, extraordinarily well-read, and she understood the Constitution at the highest possible level. Every lawyer takes an oath 
to defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Arizona or whatever it is. Some people are uniquely situated to defend the Constitution of the United States and protect the citizens of the United States under the Constitution in a very real sense. And that's people like Sandra Day O'Connor. I mean, she could have gone all over the place. She could have been a total women's, women's uh, lawyer and decided everything in favor of women, but she didn't. She listened to the cases. She listened to what was being said, um, and, and she decided things based upon the law, and she complied with her responsibility to the best of her ability to do what's the right thing under, these, under the circumstances before. And we just live in a country where whenever politics don't go our way, we, we think we're getting screwed. And sometimes politics don't go your way. Sometimes things don't, don't go your way. It, it's, it's not so black and white. I've been kind of troubled for the longest time over how it's almost like the United States has moved from being a country with uh, uh, some sort of a unified view of itself to a, a country that has two sides almost. And they're almost equally armed and they're almost equally stacked against each other. On every issue. On every issue. And we were just divided almost down the middle. And, and uh, it, it's, it's mind-boggling to me that there's no bipartisanship uh, uh, anymore. There's no bipartisan. Barry Goldwater was an incredible human being and uh, a master statesman. And uh, he went to the University of Arizona. Uh, and he was very capable. He's the one who went and talked to Nixon and said, you know, you're going to get impeached. And Nixon must have listened to him because he resigned. Along with the other Arizona, John Rhodes. Right, John Rhodes, of course. Another great guy. I was, yeah, I was stuck up in Shola one time. I was wandering around White Mountain Country Club, and I was completely lost. I had no idea where I was. And uh, there was a guy out there cooking steaks. And he came over and he said, hey, can I help you? Da, da, da. It was John Rhodes. That's the kind of guy he was. As we, as we continue to try to define individually and nationally uh, the uh, premise of this program, and that is justice and morality uh, in the United States, you bring up Barry Goldwater. And uh, those of us who knew Barry and were here during that period of time uh, when he represented uh, the state of Arizona and the Senate. His book was called The Conscience of a Conservative. Correct. And I'm often uh, really stuck with any kind of ability to determine what his political category would be now. I think if you listen to what he said, and what his morality was, how he morally perceived his responsibility as a senator, not as he perceived his responsibility to follow the Constitution and do his job. Today, uh, he was thought back in the time to be a very conservative guy, but he really wasn't. He, he was very libertarian in many ways, 
very much in favor of individual freedoms, very much in favor of uh, uh, working together, and a very bipartisan guy. I mean, he was very good friends with the Kennedys, uh, very good friends with other people on the other side, and they had civil conversations where they resolved stuff. That seems to be gone from uh, our uh, arsenal of ways to solve problems. Is uh, uh, You can't reach across the table and shake somebody's hand and say, look, I know you disagree on this, but how about that? And it, we just become more and more that way. He really had a very strong desire uh, to go on a whistle-stop tour had there been a campaign for 1964, of course cut short by the assassination. He had tremendous respect for Jack Kennedy. And he uh, got a little weepy on the radio program one time, talking about that loss and also the dreams they both had of being on a whistle-stop tour on a train going across the United States, little tiny hamlets, and campaigning together about the issues of the day. Thoughtless then? No. That was the way people considered the possibilities of being elected so that you would know what they stood for. Now, no one can even imagine it. No, it, it will never happen again. The Lincoln-Douglas debates about slavery, some of the greatest uh, conversation in the history of America, and, and a game changer uh, uh, for, the pop, for the voting public. Uh, those kinds of things are never going to happen again. Uh, Jack Kennedy and, and Barry Gold are both veterans, both World War II guys. They had a lot in common, and, and you could see how they could sit down and come to a consensus on what to do uh, uh, just by respecting what the other person had to say and listening to what they had to say and thinking about their own beliefs and modifying a bit. In your 45 years of practicing law in many different capacities, have you ever quietly uh, thought in terms of one day I'd like to be a Supreme Court justice? Uh, I, one day I wanted to be a trial lawyer, and I just really never wanted to be anything else. Mm. And I think it's my highest and best use. Some people would disagree with that, but uh, I never had any aspirations to be on the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, it's just not something that uh, my whole career was guided into. Sandra Day O'Connor uh, her career wasn't really pushed, so you would think that she would end up on the United States Supreme Court. But she did some very memorable things when she was in the legislature here in the state of Arizona, and when she was on the bench in the state of Arizona, and she got the attention of Ronald Reagan. What about the responsibilities that the Supreme Court justices have now with subjects like um, artificial intelligence, and uh, the infinite avenues uh, that that presents uh, to uh, those making decisions, transgender decisions. Is it the toughest period of time to be in law? You know, I don't know, Pat, because I have only been involved in this period of law, and we do seem to get... Uh, 
more, de more defined issues. But I think oh, if you go back in time, our Supreme Court in the United States has struggled with issues. Birth control was a big issue that had to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, 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 whether or not you could use birth control pills in your own home. Uh, yes. Once upon a time, that was a, an issue that uh, uh, split, fractured the public. Half, you know, people were pro and people were against. Uh, you know, the issue I think we've seen that's the most uh, uh, problematic in our lives has been abortion. I mean, it's just that it's a, it's, it's a word that evokes certain responses at certain people and, and surprising responses in some cases where you would think that's the last response I would have expected from this person. But our Supreme Court, the only thing nice about the Supreme Court was, strike that, one of the things that was nice about the Supreme Court was Usually when they made up their mind on a big decision, they stuck to that decision and they let it play out. Uh, uh, and sometimes it's taken hundreds of years to play out the way it was intended. But very seldom do they back away 100% from longstanding precedent. And, and uh, that, that bothers me as, as a lawyer that bothers me as a citizen of the country. Make up your mind. You know, it's like the Second Amendment. I don't agree with the Supreme Court ruling on the Second Amendment, but that's the law in the United States of America. And I'm, Abraham Lincoln was confronted with the Dred Scott decision. It basically said slaves are property. He didn't like that decision. He didn't agree with it. He thought it was the worst decision ever. But he lived with it until he was able to work his magic and get it overturned and get it uh, 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 abolished and to change the whole fabric of our society. Uh, um, I, I just, I, I wonder if we've run out of politicians who possess the ability to look at the issues that are confronting our society and come up with some sort of a reasoned way to try to address them. I just wonder if those people are not around anymore. And one of the major issues that you brought up just a matter of moments ago is abortion. And do you believe, as a representative of the practice of law, that it is something that is as simple as a decision that should be made only by a woman and her doctor? As an Arizonan, I definitely believe that under our Constitution because we have a right of privacy in this state. And... All of the precedent set by Roe versus Wade was based on the premise that it's a private decision between a woman and her doctor. And in Arizona, since we recognize a right of privacy, we should have the same stand on that. What they did in 1880, before we ever became a state and we were a territory of the United States and how they thought about abortion, uh, um, I don't think that's... Has, it's not germane to what the issue is today. And the other thing, talking about law and morality, people think that the abortion laws were passed because they were moral judgments. They were expressing a moral judgment that abortion was wrong. 
But if you go back and look at the cases, what they actually were, they were protective laws that prevented women from getting an abortion where they were going to these backstreet abortion clinics and getting abortions because they had to have them because and they were getting killed and maimed and destroyed. The anti-abortion laws, for that reason, not to say, as a moral judgment, the United States has decided that abortion is a bad thing. This has been absolutely fascinating, the conversation I have uh, with you, and I know that the audience in the main agrees with you, except those people who disagree. And uh, I guess that's a part of all being in America, too. All right? 50% of them. Uh, is it possible, with two minutes left in the broadcast, is it really possible for everybody to find justice in America, including the immigrants that are right now crossing the border? Is it possible? It's certainly possible. Is it probable? I don't know. We've been fighting these issues for hundreds of years. We've been addressing them. We've been changing them. We've been moving. Uh, the uh, affluent can find justice, can't they? Well, I think that uh, <laughs> if you have another two hours, I'm more than happy to discuss it with you. But there, there is that belief in our country. And I think that what people lose sight of is one of the things that made our country in the beginning uh, appealing to people who lived elsewhere on the globe was the fact that we said all oh, people were created equal. We gave them a chance and an opportunity to compete equally for things. And we gave them the opportunity to do the best that they could do and succeed and be successful or try to succeed and not be successful. Uh, but at least they gave them that opportunity. We still do that today. And, and who among us doesn't want the opportunity to be the best person they can be? I don't know. I certainly do. I certainly do. So is it still fairly easy for anyone to find a good attorney in the United States? I think my dad used to say there is always... He used to interview all these orthopedic surgeons that were trying to decide whether... They wanted to move to Phoenix or Chicago or L.A., and they had all these offers. And their question was, uh, is there room for another orthopedic surgeon in Maricopa County? And his answer was, there is always room for a gifted orthopedic surgeon anywhere. And that's applicable to the practice of law. Correct. I think there's an obvious reason why it is that we invited Judge J. Tyrrell Tabor, that's T-A-B-E-R, not Saber, but Tabor to the God Show. And uh, I don't have to explain it. I'm just the host. I'm Patrick Payne. <laughs>